On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Matthew Bingham about his new book, Orthodox Radicals, and the invention of Baptist identity, especially particularly labels, that of particular Baptist, general Baptist, and Baptist in general, and what does that look like in the 17th century? We also talk to him about how Baptists of that time period thought about associationalism and denominationalism. Was there more cooperation during this time period or less? Uh, What did that exactly look like? What are some implications of that? Uh, Further, we ask, how did Baptists of this period, and I I use that term pan-Baptist, you know, as a big catch-all group, which obviously, if you listen to the episode, disagrees with, but uh, in using that, do Baptists of different stripes think about confessions differently? How do they think about confessions in general? And then we talk about uh, these different emphases of being ecumenical versus being more, I guess, separatist. So I think it's a really fun episode. We learned a lot. He's really a ton of fun to talk to, really gracious and helpful. You're going to enjoy it. And as always, if you have ideas for the episode, if you've got an idea for a guest you want to have on the episode, you want to hear from them, or maybe you've got a topic that you really want us to discuss, hit us up with a a direct message on Twitter, a message on Facebook, or you can email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com. We'd love to hear from you. Anyway, enjoy the episode. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that hopes to encourage deep and clear thinking. And today, it's my pleasure to introduce what I consider really a groundbreaking author in Baptistic uh, historical theology, uh, particularly on Baptistic identity. Uh, I've had the pleasure of reading... I guess his most recent book, Orthodox Radicals. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Honestly, it's probably one of my favorite his- history books I've read. It it reads so well, uh, so smoothly um, that I, I highly recommend it to those who are listening. As well as he's got a r- really good chapter on a small book called On Being Reformed uh, that I definitely recommend as well. So you should get your hands on both of those things. And he was gracious, gracious enough to join the show today to talk uh, about his books and particular theological questions uh, that I found really interesting that arose uh, from reading these things. So, Dr. Matthew Bingham, uh, I want to introduce you to all of our listeners who may not know who you are, or maybe they do. Um, why don't you give us uh, a short introduction to who you are and what you what you like to do um, as far as, I guess, history and theology go or, or anything else? Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Um, yeah, well, I'm from Los Angeles, California, originally. Um, studied history at uh, UCLA, but then um, went into uh, ministry, was a pastor of a Baptist church in the United States, in Albany, Georgia, and then it moved to Northern Ireland to pursue a PhD study, and did that at Queen's University, Belfast, and now I teach systematic theology and church history at Oak Hill College in North London. Um, I'm married, have three kids, and um, we're, in, we're enjoying life in the UK. Um, academically, my interests, my research interests, as, as you mentioned, are in early modern uh, British religious history, and in particular, looking at uh, the origins of um, Calvinistic Baptists in the 17th century during the English Revolution. So in the introduction to your, your book, Orthodox Radicals, um, you say this, you say the present volume will challenge longstanding uh, assumptions 
within Baptist historiography and offer a major reinterpretation of particular or Calvinistic Baptist self-identity during the English Revolution and interregnum. So with that in mind, uh, we can see that this what you've written here is not just a, a small deviation. You're trying to, to really change the way we think about um, this group that we commonly call 17th century Baptists. So can you briefly, if you can do it briefly, or take as long as you want, uh, explain to us what is this thesis and, and how you want us to change the way we think about um, Baptistic identity in the 17th century? Yeah, well, it, the the book really um, originally was going to be a rather different book. I, I, I wanted to just sort of look in a more straightforward way at uh, the kind of history of Calvinistic Baptists. But I got a little, as often happens, a little sidetracked in terms of the, the research because uh, I got interested in the labels that were used, the way in which labels are applied and the way in which labels, particularly religious labels, actually um, sort of lend coherence to certain concepts and the way in which we name groups um, actually can distort the way we understand those groups. And um, in the first instance, uh, that came to my attention looking at the 17th century materials and looking at the original primary source documents and just starting to notice that though we talk about Baptists in the 17th century, um, nobody in the 17th century, at least in the in the 1630s and 1640s, 1650s, when these groups are really emerging, nobody is using this label Baptist. And that's interesting. That doesn't necessarily mean anything on its own, but that just got me thinking, well, how, how do these people describe themselves? And uh, you, you start to recognize that they don't really have a consistent way of identifying themselves. Then you start to think, okay, well, w- what does that mean? And so little by little, uh, I started sort of teasing out this issue of, of names and labels. And it uh, started to click with me that, you, you know, when we talk about Baptists with a capital B and we say, oh yeah, 17th century, here's Baptist, here's the first Baptist church, here's Baptist authors, this, that, and the other. It, is it possible that actually because we know kind of how the story ends, because we know that today there's a group called Baptists and they have lots of uh, worldwide organizations and all this, um, do we project that back on to the mid-17th century? And do we create clarity where actually there was a lot of confusion? And um, uh, eventually the idea came forward in the, in the book that that's exactly what's happened and that you have had a long history of denominational historians who have uh, looked at their own sort of ecclesiastical situations when they're writing. They want to write the history of Baptists with a capital B. And so they project those later formations and, and alignments onto uh, an early modern period that actually was very uh, confused and very chaotic. And you didn't have a group called Baptists with a capital B, a group of people that all would have sort of recognized one another as, as sort of fellow travelers because, hey, we're all the Baptists. And even if we disagree over this and that, we're, we're basically on the same team. Rather, um, the way I came to understand what's going on in the period is you have people who are essentially um, congregationally minded Puritans who start to rethink the question of baptism. And so what happens when you rethink the question of baptism and you rethink the issue of paedo-baptism and you start to say, actually, no, I don't think we should baptize infants. That's something for believers. If you make that shift, what happens to you? 
Are you automatically slotted into a new big B Baptist communion? Or are you just a person who's changed your mind on something? And I think that way of reframing the issue in the period is helpful in bringing clarity in terms of what was actually going on during this period. So later, you start to get the hardening lines and and big B Baptist denominations and all that. Of course, that happens. But what was happening during the late 1630s and the 1640s? And there, the lines aren't nearly as clear. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, I find your whole thesis and everything utterly persuasive. So so I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Brandon, were you going to say something before? Well, you you use the analogy of a team there. So it would be fair, like there was no big B Baptist team, like a team of Baptists. But so the team would be congregationalists. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's that's a... um, So you get these terms. So again, using terms and labels that the historical actors were using, that that doesn't need to be a hard and fast rule, but it is at least a helpful entry point. And you start looking at, well, what what words and labels were available to them at that time? And one label that is used a lot is um, this label congregational way, practitioners, Mm -hmm. followers of the congregational way. And what I see when I look at the primary source documents is you have these practitioners of the congregational way. So it's starting out with, with uh, um, identifying themselves around issues of polity. And some of those practitioners of the congregational way uh, start to disagree over the baptismal issue. Now, in the 17th century, would congregational and independent, would those have been synonyms? Or is there a difference there? Yeah, th- those... Um, Different historians have tried in, in different uh, occasions to tease out some distinction, and so you will find some people sometimes trying to use them in different ways. But uh, as I see it, those are essentially used interchangeably. Uh, okay. Both of those terms are are used by contemporaries. The only difference that that I see is um, Congregationalists didn't particularly always like the term independent because it uh, it seemed to them to imply a sort of isolationist tendency and we're cutting ourselves off from all other Christians mm-hmm. and it's just us. And, and in fact, I think um, that they, they have a point there. So they preferred congregational way. Um, but the two terms are used both by contemporaries more or less interchangeably. Okay. So I guess while we're on the topic of congregationalism, can you just give us a, a definition of, of what congregational ecclesiology is? Some of our listeners may not be as familiar uh, with what that looks like. Yeah, right. So um, basically, you know, the way we, we think of it now, um, we think in terms of there's sort of three big options, right, for how you organize the church for polity. Mm-hmm. You can have a Episcopalian structure. You can have a Presbyterian structure or a congregational structure, right? And then there's all sorts of variations on those. And uh, Episcopalian is is hierarchical. You have a a figure at the top, um, an archbishop, or in in the case of our Roman Catholic friends, a pope, and then you have other people under him, and then more under them. It's hierarchical. Uh, Then you have um, congregational, where the, um, the congregation is the sort of final court of appeal. Um, The congregation is ultimately the, the sort of the last, uh, you know, the buck stops there with the local congregation. 
And then Presbyterianism is one in which you, you do have a sort of hierarchy, but it's not with an individual at the top. It's rather a, a collection of church leaders at the top. But the key difference between the Presbyterian and the Congregational is that in the case of the Presbyterians, you have some sort of court of appeal outside the local congregation that has binding authority over the local congregation. Now, that, that's kind of how we think of it today, and that, I think that's, that's fair enough. But if you look in terms of 17th century congregationalism, uh, I think um, maybe a, a more helpful way to get into how they thought of it and how it developed you see in their writings, there's there's two basic claims that give congregational ecclesiology its distinctive shape. Um, the the first, in and this is really at the heart of the congregational way, you have this assertion that in the New Testament we find only one legitimate institutional expression of the visible church, and that is the local congregation. So we talk about the visible church, or as they would have put it, sometimes a, a political church. Uh, or institutional church, we're talking about the church that you can you can see um, embodied in actual concrete institutions. And congregationalists are saying, actually, uh, the only visible church that the New Testament gives us is the local congregation. And then their second sort of plank is they're going to say that this local congregation is to be a, a, a voluntary association of um, so-called visible saints, so people whose lives give some sort of evidence that they are, that they have in fact um, experienced a, a saving work of grace in their lives. And those two together really form the heart of this, um, this congregational way. And so local church, that's the only visible expression of the church that we have. And the church is composed of visible saints. And so then what ends up happening the way these congregationalists talk about um, the church, they'll say you can have different churches get together. You can have different Christians get together. They can talk, they can share, they can encourage one another, they can exhort. But that amalgamation of Christians is always to be thought of as, as churches gathered together, different churches gathering together. Mm -hmm. That amalgamation doesn't constitute and should not be referred to as the church. Right. Whereas for <clears throat> Presbyterians, they could envision um, all the churches in a region getting together at a Presbyterian meeting, and that's a meeting of the church. They could envision all the churches in a nation getting together, the leaders getting together, and that's a, a meeting of the church. For Congregationalists, they really policed their language, and they said, no, those that's not the church. Those are maybe churches. Um, mm -hmm. But they want to keep that distinction very clear, that there's only one visible church, and that's the, the local congregation. Got it. That's good stuff. So I, I think this particular area is what really interested me in, uh, in both of your books, because at least from my understanding, it seems like the modern way uh, of Baptistic or congregational polity seems a little bit different in emphases, which I think you mentioned. So one comment you made in that uh, chapter in On Being Reformed, you were explaining how congregational ecclesiology, at least during the 17th century, was perhaps closer to Presbyterianism than many modern observers might realize, and that these Congregational and Baptist churches during the 17th century actually insisted upon a plurality of elders ruling over the local congregation and argued that multiple local congregations should be joined together in a robust consociation. And I don't see that in modern 
examples of congregational or baptistic life. So, and I am much more personally, I'm more partial to that. I'm a Baptist, but I'm more partial to this type of idea. So it fascinated me and I wanted to learn more about it. So could you help me understand? You, you said a plurality of elders ruled over the local congregation. In the 17th century context, what does it mean that elders are actually ruling and, and what authority did they have over the congregation? Yeah, right. Um, so were they actually sort of ruling over the congregation? What were the functions of of elders? Um, you know, I suppose it, it you know, how, how do you define uh, what it means to rule over the congregation? And, um, you, you know, different congregations are going to sort of, it's, it's going to shake out differently. And you can find, just as today, you can find different sort of arrangements for what are tasks that the elders handle, what are tasks that the congregation sort of votes on or has a say in. That's going to shake out differently across local congregations then and now. Um, but in the main, you know, so you see, for example, in the uh, the earliest Calvinistic Baptist confessions, like the 1644 um, First London Confession, you see this idea that elders are to be uh, appointed. It's the implication there's more than one of them, and that these uh, elders are to have responsibility for um, for preaching and teaching, for the administration of the sacraments, for overseeing church discipline, for uh, the pastoral care of the congregation, all the things that we associate um, with pastors today. And so though the congregation is going to have opportunity to vote on different things and, and in an ultimate sense, sort of everything's happening at, at sort of uh, with the sort of permission of the congregation, they're, they're all sort of joining together by common consent. Um, the reality is that, that the elders are given a, a great deal of authority to do all sorts of things in the life of the church. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, so I guess, at least in modern stuff that I've read, there's guys who make a distinction, it seems like, between an idea of elder rule and elder-led uh, models of Baptistic life. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with that type of literature, um, but I'm curious if that would be applicable to this scenario where elder-led being more along the lines of, I don't actually have any authority besides what the congregation has given to me. And the congregation still has to kind of vote on everything, even though I'm somewhat the figurehead leading the charge. Whereas elder rule seems to be more along the lines of, I actually have authority to say veto or, or the congregation, or at least I don't have to ask the congregation to do certain things. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting when we talk about that distinction, elder ruled, elder led, um, at some point, uh, different different situations, different churches are going to work that out differently, aren't they? So, yeah. um, in, in my own experience, you know, in Presbyterian churches that I've, I've been a part of, um, they still have places and times where the congregation is asked for their approval for certain measures. The mm -hmm. congregation is given input into the life of the local church, etc. And in the Baptist churches that I've been a part of, there are things that the elders more or less. Uh, just take care of and more or less say to the congregation, here's what we're going to do. And so it, it seems to me while those are helpful sort of orienting polls in terms of, okay, are we going more in this direction than that direction? It seems like in practice, every, every church is going to work that out a little differently. Yeah. Um, I, I think the one sort of more philosophical distinction that we, we do see 
And, and this is of, of the essence of, so the, the thing I just mentioned about for congregationalists, you know, this idea that the only representation of the visible church is the local congregation. It, it's from that sort of principle that these other things sort of flow. So if the only instantiation of the visible church is the local congregation, if that's, if that's the only visible church the New Testament gives us, then it makes sense that all the decisions ultimately have to reside at the level of the local congregation. If you go outside the local congregation and say, well, we're going to allow this presbytery or synod or whatever to sort of have the last word to make binding decisions on our behalf, well, then you are essentially, by their lights, appealing to a, something that the New Testament doesn't recognize. Right. Um, so... Um, but that question is distinct from this issue of of who actually has on the ground authority in the in the local congregation, the elders or the congregation as such. Um, but what you don't see in these Baptist um, documents, and I and I think this this gets a little bit toward um, what you were leading off with, with you know actually the, the claim that. 17th century Baptists in some ways operated more like we think of Presbyterians today. What you don't see is a sort of situation where you have just total democracy, where just everything mm -hmm. is is voted on and uh, it's always just sort of put to the congregation and you, you don't have a clear sense of, well, these are our officers, they're duly appointed, and they actually do have um, legitimate ruling functions within the church. Uh, even if there is this sense that ultimately they serve at sort of the sufferance of the congregation as a whole, that doesn't mean that they're not vested with a tremendous amount of authority. Right. You use this phrase, uh, robust consociation. I guess I'm saying that right. I don't know. But first part of the question is, can you define that for us? And the second, and this isn't something that we um, had discussed talking about, but how does this relate to how these groups uh, viewed ordination? So did these associations have any... I'm hesitant to use the word authority because of what you just said, but do they have any authority when it came to ordination or was that strictly at um, the local church congregational level? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So this phrase, this, um, this word consociation is a word that comes out of 17th century debate and discussion. And um, essentially, you know, we can kind of just think of the word, our word association more or less covers it. Um, consociation was a word they used. And they had this phrase they liked, congregationalists, that, where they said, we, we want consociation of churches without subordination. Consociation without subordination. So what they were really against was this idea that one church should be subordinate to any other church, or churches as a whole, individual churches, should be they should not be subordinate to any sort of uh, super-congregational body a.k.a. a Presbyterian sort of model. Um, so, though they didn't want subordination, they were very happy with this idea of consociation. And in, in fact, they insisted upon it. So, um, in, in almost all the congregational documents you see, you, you find these um, ministers working out this idea of, well, what does a um, robust consociation look like? What does that actually mean? What does it mean for churches to be assisting each other, helping each other, working together for the good of the gospel and for one another's benefit without getting into this area of subordination? How do we preserve um, the autonomy of the local church in that sense, while also sort of linking arms together? 
And so you see this, um, you see this all over the place. So let me, let me just, for example, so this is the, the 1644 London Baptist Confession, right? So this is kind of the, the big early um, Calvinistic Baptistic Confession. And they write this. Um, they say, although the particular congregations be distinct and several bodies, everyone a compact and knit city in itself, yet are they all to walk by one and the same rule? and by all means convenient to have the counsel and help of one another in all needful affairs of the church as members of one body in the common faith under Christ, their only head. So now, uh, what does that actually look like in practice? That's a little more difficult to say, but you see that at least in theory, they have this idea that, um, yes, the local congregation is autonomous in a sense, it's distinct. It's they, as they put it here, it's a city unto itself, and yet they are to uh, work with other churches and to have the counsel and help of one another in all needful affairs, uh, as members of one body in the common faith. And you see statements like that in all sorts of congregational documents. Um, but defining what that looked like in practice was harder. And part of what's going on in the mid-seventeenth century, as the congregational way is developing, is you see different congregational writers. Um, be they Baptists or Pedo-Baptists, trying to work out exactly what that might look like. And how do we do this in a way that doesn't compromise those two uh, big principles of congregationalism, and especially that first one, that the only visible instantiation of the, of, excuse me, the only instantiation of the visible church is the local congregation. So how do we work together in a way that doesn't compromise our sort of central ecclesiological insight? And they work that out in all different ways. So John Cotton, for example, um, he he at one point puts forward seven seven ways that that congregations can um, support each other. Um, you see it in in different places. Often it falls on um, this idea of giving advice, giving counsel, um, coming together for each other's mutual good. You see Baptist associations in the mid seventeenth century would meet regularly. They're, so they're sending representatives or messengers would be the language they would use. They send their messengers and they um, they talk about things and they say, here's what's happening. What do you guys think we should do? And the the group can sort of set forward advice. But the key is at the end of the day, it's non-binding advice. Mm -hmm. So right. that association can't say you have to do this because this is what we're going to do. But they can say this is what we prayerfully think you should do. And so um, where I think is interesting, you know, that can look a lot like Presbyterianism. And that's a lot more of a of a robust consociation, to use that word, than, than I've seen in a lot of my own experience with, with Baptist churches and independent churches. And I, I think there's something really helpful there for us. So I guess... I'm wondering what is, I mean, is this idea of complete independence without consociation, is that really part of Baptist identity or did that, I'm assuming that developed later considering we have all these examples of these Baptists who are, uh, I guess, promoting this idea of being connected in some type of way without the subordination. Yeah, right. Um, and, and, and here's where I, I think sometimes today we think of sort of the essence of Baptist life as the autonomy of the local church. I mean, that's sort of yeah. what Baptist polity is all about, is that nobody can tell your church what to do. And again, um, there's a sense in which I think that 
that is what it means to be a congregationalist in a certain sense, in the sense that ultimately um, the spiritual affairs of a local congregation are a matter to be worked out in and by that local congregation. And, and you, you can't have people outside of it laying down binding sort of edicts. And that's rooted in um, the idea that that's just not what the New Testament gives us. However, that being said, where I think that gets distorted, that that um, basic congregational principle gets distorted when that becomes an emphasis now on uh, the autonomy of the local church to the exclusion of any sort of meaningful fellowship on a on a church to church level, and I, I think that's um, that's an unhelpful thing. Um, you know, it's it it tends to isolate churches, tends to isolate pastors and elders. Um, you know, we, we need one another and in saying that, uh, our polity is congregational and that means that we, we don't sort of allow, uh, people outside the congregation to dictate our business to us. That, that doesn't mean we don't recognize the, the church down the road as a legi- legitimate church. And it doesn't mean that we don't need each other to do the work of the ministry. Um, recovering that though, I think is, is easier said than done. I think it's real difficult to see how that would um, work out in practice. I was at a gathering not that long ago of mostly Baptist ministers uh, here in an English context. And this was the very issue up for discussion, you know, kind of thinking about, um, you know, hey, look, earlier Baptist churches were much better, or at least they tried to be much better about meaningfully getting together for mutual benefit, this idea of consociation. We don't seem to be so good at that. How can we get better? And um, while there was a lot of sympathy for the idea, it it is hard to see what that would look like. I think it's hard practically to move past um, sort of pastors, fraternals, you know, that that's easy enough for the the sort of preaching pastors associate those guys get together and and talk about it. But that has a different flavor, doesn't it? That, that becomes often, you know, let's talk about our, our problems. Let's pray for one another. And that's totally valuable. Let me talk (laughs) about this, you know, person in my church who's causing me grief. That's valuable, (laughs) but that's real different, isn't it? Than my church meeting with your church as such to sort of actually in some way help each other navigate um, okay, what do we think about this, you know, current issue X? What do we think about that? What should we do? That's that's good. Uh, one more question on this topic before we uh, switch gears a little bit. I am curious about the topic of ordination. I think me and Brandon, we argue back and forth a little bit on this ourselves. We text each other all the time. Uh, he seemed, basically, I think Brandon's argument is under Baptistic ecclesiology, um, the idea of ordination should be non-transferable between churches. Um, and I'm wondering, did uh, 17th century Baptists have any opinion on ordination and how that looked like? Was ordination something that a single church did or a consociation of churches did? And and if it was a single church, was it transferable to other Baptist churches? Yeah. Um, again, like this with... W- really with all these sort of practical polity questions, you, you find a um, some diversity in terms of what people are doing. And that reflect, shouldn't really surprise us because these these are people who really are just sort of working these things out. And in, in many 
cases, you know, they're, they're doing something that hasn't been done before. Um, in the mid 17th century, you know, to, to question infant baptism, to break away from the national church, uh, this is all sort of really, really, uh, in some sense, radical, revolutionary sorts of things. And so they're left with questions. Well, what does this look like? And the degree to which a minister in one local congregation might in any way exert authority in a congregation not his own, this was a topic that was much debated and discussed. And there's all sorts of nuances. You know, if I'm the pastor in this church, can I come and um, uh, administer the Lord's Supper in a different church? Uh, or is that not okay? Um, can one pastor, if you've got a couple churches, can he can he sort of plant, to use our language, they wouldn't use that language, of course, but can he, if I plant a church here and I plant a church there and I plant a church over there, but there aren't enough pastors to go around, can I sort of be the pastor to all of them in some way? They're, they're asking these questions and they're trying to, to um, work out answers. Um, but the general sort of line, and this sort of solidifies over time, is, is that, uh, you know, you are called to be the pastor of a particular local congregation. And so your, you know, your ordination um, doesn't extend beyond that local congregation. And if you think about it, really, that logic is is bound up with this idea that the only visible church the New Testament recognizes is the <laughs> local congregation. If, yeah. if that's what you see, if that's if that's the one sort of institution the New Testament gives us, then um, you can see how a local church can say, "Okay, you're an officer here. You're going to be our elder. You're going to be our deacon." But but what is this uh, body outside? What is this institutional body outside the local congregation that has the power to grant you an authority that transcends? The local congregation. Mm-hmm. The, the the whole idea of it implies that there's some sort of ecclesiastical institution outside of and above and over the local congregation. And the central insight of congregationalism is that no such extra congregational body exists. So so baked into the cake and the so the sort of very logic of congregationalism seems to be this strong sense that um, an officer is tied to a particular local church, and he is there in in some sense at the at the behest and, and uh, of the local congregation. Um, now, practically, though, again, you have all these other questions. Well, does that mean that if I can I preach it at another church? Um, you know, there's all sorts of practical things that that come yeah. out, and they and they talk about that and they debate that over and over again. But um, the general logic, the general drift, is towards you're an officer at this church and what does that have to do with other churches? Yeah, that's very helpful. I just want to go on record and say, I feel totally vindicated <laughs> right now by that answer. We can end the podcast now and I'd be, I'd be happy. But uh, so in your, in your book, uh, Orthodox radicals, you talk about two different um, Baptistic congregational styles uh, during this time period in the 17th century. So one is w- more ecumenical and then one is more um, separatist. And you go on to say that we, we can't use the word, this is just a continuation of your earlier argument, we can't use the word Baptist to describe both of these groups. So what would you say? Or, or that we shouldn't use the word. I, yeah, I, right, right. We shouldn't use the word. So what would you say is a, a better term to differentiate between the separatist group and the more ecumenical group? Because these are both the Calvinistic Baptists, I guess right. two, 
two different styles of Calvinistic Baptist here. Yeah, yeah. So, so just to kind of yeah flesh that out a bit. So, what what's going on there at the book is um, in the earlier portion of of the book, uh, the idea is to say, hey, you know, we use this term Baptist with a big B to describe all these people, but actually, when you sort of drill down. Um, we're, we're applying this label Baptist to lots of different groups that actually didn't have anything to do with each other and uh, didn't have any sense of common purpose, didn't see themselves as, as sort of playing on the same team, as it were. And is it not the case that to call all of them Baptists with a big B actually sort of distorts our sense of, of the period, right? And, and the, the sort of central um, application of, of that line is with respect to, um, these, uh, general Baptists or Arminian influenced mm-hmm. Baptists and these Calvinistic Baptists, they've come to be called particular Baptists. Um, you know, we talk about them all as Baptists, but actually does that not sort of obscure where the real lines of affinity and, and continuity, uh, were during the, during the period. So in the chapter that you're referencing, um, it's the last full chapter in the book. And there I was trying to sort of turn the lens and say, and actually, you know, so we've been trying to complicate the situation, right? And say, we, we say Baptist Big B, but there's all these different people. And actually, even if you look at Calvinistic Baptists during the um, the 1650s, more or less where this chapter focuses, even there amongst the Calvinistic Baptists, you don't see this sort of homogenous, um, mm-hmm. sort of denomination. A, a lot of this is is we, we have to get away from this idea that because we have denominations now that are called Baptists, it doesn't mean that they were operating with this strong sense of denomination. And um, a lot of historians of the period have have sort of made that point. Um, often, though, they, they kind of make it in passing and then they, they move on to other concerns. So with this book, um, my hope was to kind of drill down on that and, and explore yeah. it in some depth. Um, but you, do you want to, um, now with that, that was a long preface. Do you want to sort of drill back down yeah. on the particular? So I guess I'm wondering what, what would better terms for these two groups be? I'm assuming, you know, you mentioned ecumenical and separatist. Is that, I guess, sufficient for the two types of, I don't know, approaches to congregational life in general and Secondly, what is the theological rationale for both these two groups? Why are they making the decisions they're doing? Yeah, great. So um, talking then about the the way in which um, Baptists were trying to sort of flesh out their identity in the 1650s, uh, I'm, I'm trying to make the observation that you do see these two sort of tendencies. And again, I, I'm not even sure we would want to sort of uh, create separate labels to sort of rigidly classify them. But it, it is helpful, I think, to identify that you you see some um, churches and associations and individuals sort of trending in this more um, irenic, ecumenical uh, direction in which they are happy to work with the um, uh, the Cromwellian regime. Cromwell's in, in power at this point, and he's sort of building this kind of pan- Puritan congregationally based consensus for what national religious life should look like. And you see Baptistic um, congregationalists happy to, to work with and work in that scheme. And then you see other people who also are Baptistic and congregationalist 
actually pressing hard against that and saying, no, we, we should have nothing to do with this. This is still a compromise. This is, um, this is still sort of, uh, you know, they were keen to apply the label of antichrist to, to all sorts of things. So, you know, <laughs> different times, different times, but in any event, so you see some people, for example, um, who, who are becoming so, so sort of rigid, so sectarian, so isolationist, that they're saying actually um, that they're starting to impose things at their uh, associational meetings and they're asking questions. They'll say like, well, um, is it okay for me to, um, you know, go to a non-baptized church? That was a term they started to use, non-baptized. Um, and they'll say, well, no, you can't. Well, can I go and um, can I meet with non-baptized believers for prayer? And some of these associations say, no, you shouldn't even do that. Um they'll say, can I have someone who uh, is is not baptized himself? He's not baptistic, but he seems to be a godly person in any way, in every way. Can he come and preach at my church? No, you, you can't do that. So you're seeing this sort of, sort of rigid approach to church yeah. life. And then it's contrasted with a whole host of other figures during the period who seem very happy to not only partner with um, non-Baptists, um, but also, you know, in, endorse their ministries in various ways, even to allow disagreement within their own congregations. So you have prominent Baptistic ministers who are happy enough. If you're a Pado Baptist, you're happy. They're happy for you to be a part of their church, be a part of their membership. Um, and and they're saying, you know, we don't we don't need to divide over that issue. And so the point there then in identifying those two tendencies isn't so much to try to say, well, here's two you know, sort of separate groups, but rather to say that the picture is, is sufficiently complicated that this yeah. big mm-hmm. Baptist, big B label, it doesn't even helpfully necessarily, um, it, it even distorts Calvinistic Baptists to say mm-hmm. nothing of when you start lumping in the Arminian Baptists and other people. Right. Um, it, it suggests more coherence than there actually was. Right. That makes sense. As far as I wanted to get you to touch on um, confessions a little bit. So as far as confessions go, um, some of our listeners are going to know that that the Second London Confession um, has a tremendous amount of overlap with the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration. And this was done really as an act of solidarity um, or theological solidarity, I guess you could say, on the part of the the, the writers of the Second London. Um, But so, so not so much. This isn't a question about the content of the confessions, but about how the this these uh, Baptistic Congregationalists used a confession in the life of the church. So, how was that different in comparison to their uh, Presbyterian brothers? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, w- we have these documents, and we make a lot of reference to them. Oh, this confession, that confession, um, but. It is interesting to stop and pause and ask, why were they writing these documents? What did these documents mean to them? Um, and, you know, in, in a sense, uh, creeds and confessions are just a part of the Christian story. You know, Christianity, unlike um, other religions and, and pagan religions, places a, a tremendous emphasis on, on right belief, you know, believing the right things, confessing with your mouth the right things as opposed to the wrong things. Um, you know, Timothy, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. So, you know, you, we have this emphasis in Christianity on getting beliefs right. And so it seems natural then that, that Christians would want to formulate their beliefs in concise uh, ways. So you can sort of say, this is what we believe. Um, and if you don't believe this, then you're you're outside 
the circle. And so in, in a sense, when Baptists are making confessions in the 17th century, they're not doing anything that Christians haven't been doing um, more or less since the beginning. Uh, but that being said, you do post-Reformation see a real explosion of interest in confessional statements generally. And that sort of makes sense when you think about what's going on, right? You know, so you have people who, uh, again, we always forget kind of just how radical things were because we're so used to them. But I mean, they're doing something that's absolutely insane at the time. They're, they're saying <laughs> we reject the only sort of Christian church that we know, uh, that, that, you know, we're rejecting this sort of, um, you know, Western consensus that the Bishop of Rome is is the sort of leader of all Christians, and we're going to do our own thing. Okay, well, fine. You're not Roman Catholic. What what are you then? You have to define yourself and define yourself not only over against Roman Catholicism, but over against other Protestant groups with whom you disagree. So in some sense, then, when we see Baptists producing confessions in the 17th century, they are just doing what everybody else is doing. The whole period is full of confession production. Um, and so in a sense, how are they using confessions differently than other people? Uh, in a, in a major sense, they're not, mm. but I think one thing we can say about Baptists, particularly, you know, in, in the English context, one thing that does separate them out is the way in which, um, the Baptist confessional writers are from the word go just always on the sort of defensive and, they are always trying to use these confessions in a sort of apologetic way to say, hey, um, you think that we're these big baddies. You're associating us with, <laughs> you know, 16th century uh, Anabaptists who did some wild things and, and took over a city and, and, and tried to bring in a, a sort of um, uh, theocracy. We're, we're not that. We're not that. In fact, you know, so the 1644 London Baptist Confession, to which we've already made reference here a number of times, it, it begins, the, the first title is the confession of faith of those churches, which are commonly, though falsely called Anabaptists. So again, that gets to the issue of labels that we've been talking about. And right yeah. from the word go, these are people who um, are defining themselves in some sense, primarily in terms of what they are not which is a very curious mm -hmm. sort of posture when you think about it. Um, so that's where these Baptists are at. They're, they're, they're actually, the 1644 Confession is actually distributed um, after it's written. They're, they're, they're handing it out at the, at the door to Parliament. As people are going in, they're handing out copies of it, saying, hey, would you read this, please? Would you, would you learn about us? Would you see where we are? And actually, what we want you to see is that we're, um, we're not far off from where you all are. In fact, we hold the same faith as you. We just have a difference of opinion over these discrete issues. Um, the chief distinctive being <clears throat> pedobaptism. And you see that real strongly with the second London Baptist Confession. Um, we, you know, we refer to it as 1689. It, it's written in 1677. And in the preface to that document, they, um, the authors of that, they say that they're writing and they wish to manifest our consent um, with the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration, which was Savoy was basically a, a congregational modification of the Westminster Confession. And they said that we want to show our consent in all the fundamental, uh, fundamental articles of the Christian religion. And they said we have no itch to clog religion with new words but rather they want to explain um, and display their hearty agreement with the wholesome Protestant doctrine, uh, which has already been agreed upon by other Protestants. 
So you can see it in 1644, you can see it in 1689, this sort of defensive apologetic posture. And that's where I would see a, a, a difference maybe between what they're doing and maybe what other confessional uh, writers are doing. They don't have the, uh, the backing of the state. They don't have the backing of the magistrate. And they're essentially trying to say, hey, we're not, we're not bad guys. We're not boogeymen. We're okay. And, and we're going to show you how okay we are by putting forward this statement mm-hmm. of faith. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you for that. Uh, before we before we let you go, I do want to ask one quick question about um, any book or resource recommendations you might have. Um, so obviously we want to recommend your book, uh, Orthodox Radicals, Baptist Identity uh, in the English Revolution. But uh, I guess this might be a little bit of a difficult question since your work is really, a, a as you put it, a major reinterpretation. So I know you may be hesitant to point toward more... Um, I guess, dated uh, books on this topic, but do you, are you working on anything else yourself or is anybody else um, maybe th- have the same line of thinking as you when it comes to this period that you think our listeners should maybe check out? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of directions um, and, and lots of great stuff to read um, in terms of, you know, sort of things that would, would dovetail in terms of thinking about early modern Baptists though. Um, I think, uh, some helpful materials um, are we would point to um, the work of James Renahan. Um, his material is is really really helpful. Um, one in particular that I'd, I'd point to that he's written. It's a little book uh, called A Toolkit for Confessions. And uh, again, this is just a, a small book, but it, it, it's a helpful introduction to. Um, the uh, Baptist Confessions of the 17th century. And it talks about some of these questions that we've been talking about, like what, what's the purpose of a confession? Why did these people, um, you know, write a confession? What does this mean? Particularly if you're in a church that um, in some way, shape or form holds to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, that toolkit for confessions by James Renahan is, is a really helpful work. It's um so I was I was pastor in a church where we um, held to the 1689, and when we would do our new members classes, this is the book that I sort of wish that I had to to help mm-hmm. kind of explain sort of the logic of holding to a confession at all. What what's the point of this? Why do you guys do this? This is weird. Uh, you know, <laughs> you need some help there. Um, another book that is uh, as it happens, it's written by um, James Renahan's son Sam. And that's uh, called From Shadow to Substance by Samuel Renahan. And he's done really, really interesting work trying to work out the, um, not something we've really touched on, but the the covenant theology, the federal theology of the 17th century English Baptists, these Calvinistic or particular Baptists. Um, what did they believe about covenant theology? How did that um, differ or cohere with what uh, Presbyterians were teaching and others were teaching at the time, a, a really careful inquiry into those questions. Um, but that's uh, quite a specific sort of study. One book that um, was published a while ago, but it's just been reissued and, and is, a, is a really nice introduction to the whole period in terms of kind of um, names and dates and who's and what's is uh, Michael Haken's book, Kiffin, Knowles, and uh, Keach. And that book is um, it's just an introduction to some of these figures. It lays it out, and he does a nice job of sort of encouraging 
Christians and pastors today who are looking to these 17th century figures to um, to take some some real inspiration and encouragement from what these people were doing uh, many years ago. So those are, those are three in the, in the area of early English Baptist studies that, that I think would be helpful for various reasons. Awesome. So I guess before we wrap up, do you have any website or any form of location people can look you up to see what you're writing or working on and follow and say, look, maybe a couple of years from now, you got another book that's coming out that they can keep track of that and be excited and looking for it. Because I know a lot of our listeners love this stuff. I think they like eat, breathe. I mean, they sleep probably with Sam Renahan's book under their, under the pillow. They, they love it. So if you have a place for where you're putting out your work, I think they're pretty, pretty excited about it. Wow. Well, I, I hate to potentially disappoint. Uh, <laughs> I hate to disappoint, but um, so so far I've I've um, I've been sort of resisting. I have I have lyddite tendencies, I suppose. I've been resisting Twitter now successfully for some mm-hmm. time. Uh, so so no, I don't I don't have a Twitter. I don't have a website. Um, again, I hate to disappoint, but um, you can you can find me. I am contactable on the Oak Hill College website. Uh, listed there on the faculty page, and that would be that would be about the extent of my web presence, I'm afraid. That's, that sounds good. <laughs> well, we want to thank you for joining the show. I, yeah, I really thank enjoyed you. it. I think this has been really, really helpful uh, and laying the land on this topic. I think, uh, as Brandon and I have mentioned multiple times, I think you, if you're listening, you definitely need to get a, get your hands on a copy of this book. It's it's awesome. So. For those who have been listening, uh, we thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists. And we'll talk to you guys soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.